Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, and I'll be your tour guide for the next 60 minutes here. Um, great show today. Really great show. Um, we're going to be speaking uh, really about to the uh, the issues uh, in our, our schools in this country, which have always been near and dear to me as an indoor environmental consultant. Um, so to that end, uh, with us today, we, we're joined by Claire Barnett. She's the founder and executive director uh, of the Healthy Schools Network. Uh, she grew it from its roots in New York City to the nation's premier voice for children's environmental health at schools by advancing a comprehensive polity agenda, fostering state and local government health coalitions across the country, and securing landmark reforms in states and federally. Um, she's been a social entrepreneur. Uh, she previously worked, uh, reported for Time Magazine in New York City. Uh, she administered uh, rural New York health services and assisted the Adirondack Park communities uh, with sustainable development. She shifted her focus to children's environmental health uh, in the aftermath of her child's pesticide, pesticide exposure at school. Um, and I've known Claire for a long time. She's uh, been a, a very strong voice and advocate uh, in this space. And uh, great to have you here, Claire. Also Thank joining you. us is uh, Mansell Nelson. He, uh, for 22 years, uh, has served with the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, the ITEP, which is hosted at Northern Arizona University. Mansell's formal education included chemistry and chemical engineering. Prior to his service with the Northern Arizona University, Mansell served in the U.S. Army Chemical Corps for 14 years and taught community-based chemistry on the Navajo Nation for six years. Um, as program director, Mansell's mission is to help prepare Native American students for careers involving the application of science mathematics, science, and technology uh, to issues impacting tribal communities such as healthy homes, clean air, and clean water. He's also the lead instructor for the indoor air quality, healthy homes, healthy schools courses provided by ITEP. Um, so welcome, everybody. It's great to have you here. Um, also joining us, uh, of course, is our co-host, Joe Medosh, healthy building scientist with Hayward Score. And our moderator, Susan Valenti, who is the editor of Healthy Indoors Magazine. So, and uh, also welcome to our live virtual studio audience. Um, great to see you all here today. First half of the show, we'll be uh, dealing with our guests, and then uh, we'll give you the opportunity to turn your cameras on and uh, pose some live questions to us today. So, uh, great. Anyway, uh, this the timing of the show is not in, uh, totally... Uh, uh, by coincidence, right? We, we have healthy, uh, National Healthy Schools Day coming up next week, N National Healthy uh, Schools Week. Um, so I, I guess the first thing we should probably get into is, uh, what is that all about? Claire, I'll have you uh, uh, give us just kind of an overview for our audience of uh, what the foundations of that are, what's, what, what are we trying to achieve, and uh, tell us a little more about it. Sure. Well, thank, thanks so much. This is, this is a great opportunity to talk a little bit more about indoor air in a very specific kind of way. Healthy Schools Network is 26 years old in January. We celebrated with a national summit talking about COVID, climate, children, and schools. And that's really a perfect storm of multiple disasters, as well as a great opportunity looking ahead. Uh, national Healthy Schools Day was something we established 
really on a total shoestring in about 2002, uh, because this is our 19th year. Um, and we saw a lot of vendors interested in working with schools and not all of them had great ideas in our view. Uh, so we set, put together a short list of things that we thought made, made a healthy school a healthy school, about 10 items, I think, at that point in time. And we used that as sort of the first launch of National Healthy Schools Day. Our goal has never been to have just one activity taking place that everybody could participate in in person or remotely on any one day. Uh, the real goal was to get lots of people all over the place doing just one thing, a simple thing or a big thing. It was easier a few years ago uh, when before the pandemic to be inside schools, talking to boards, doing a presentation, doing a health fair or something like that. It's gotten harder recently because of more security issues than there were 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, so the event has, um, has morphed along with the times, but each year there's a particular theme. This year, the theme is build back better clean air in every school. And we feel pretty strongly about that. It's, um, uh, it began a year ago when we saw uh, CDC issue the first ever guidance uh, on the pandemic in February of 2020. Um, there were some problems with that. There were some actual factual errors in it. And that started us off to take a look at things that needed to happen last year for National Healthy Schools Day, which is our first pandemic year. And now we're looking at the second pandemic anniversary of National Healthy Schools Day. So that's a little bit of what's going on. And uh, we really appreciate the chance to talk about healthy schools and clean air in every school. Well, we, we've been uh, happy to support your efforts uh, over our, our past eight years with Healthy Indoors Magazine. So uh, really looking forward to uh, discussing more about, you know, the specifics on the upcoming week's events and uh, how people can get more involved. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mansell, tell us a little bit about ITEP. Um, that, that might be unfamiliar to some people. I'm sure it is. Um, we have a saying in our office, we're better known in the remote villages of Alaska than we are in Flagstaff. And that probably applies to our audience today. Um, ITEP, we call it ITEP. It's the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. We serve the 574 federally recognized tribes around the nation from Alaska, where about half of them are, um, all the way to the East Coast. And um, I have multiple roles at the Institute, um, but I focus on kids, schools, teachers. As a former classroom teacher, I spent a lot of time in a classroom that was inadequate in many ways. Um, and very sensitive to the needs of our teachers and students. I myself have asthma. And so I'm a pretty good biological detector can tell you if our indoor spaces have problems. And um, my experience in schools over the last 20 years of visiting schools across the nation, um, tribal schools, I can say that um, a lot of our schools have problems even before we were concerned about the pandemic. Well, there are other um, other facts that go uh, uh, deep in there, and that is that uh, tribal communities, Native Americans, actually have a higher rate of asthma on on a population in general. So not only you're challenged with an environment, you're challenged with a population that's uh, predisposed maybe to their environment, but just in general, your numbers are always been higher. We look at the national averages, so it is a a double whammy on those types of uh, of areas and communities. And now. 
you know, we, we also watched how they got really devastated with their uh, conditions through COVID. We, you know, it wasn't the national news, but if you were paying attention, you saw that some of those areas were, uh, had a lot of quick spread and had very little um, ability to, you know, control that or have the, the kind of funds to do that. So I applaud what you're doing. It's one of the one of the tough factors about um, uh, schools is that the population in schools is has changed over the years. Uh, currently, of the fifty one, it's about fifty one million children in public schools today. About twenty five percent of them, according to the National Association of School Nurses, have pre existing chronic conditions. A lot of that is asthma. Some of it is diabetes. Some of it, there are a range of difficulties. Um, the other thing that we know about schools, and I'll share this just so, so how we frame the issue of schools and children. We know that biologically children are not just little adults. They breathe more air per pound of body weight, more vulnerable to environmental health hazards. By the same token, just the way kids aren't little adults, schools are not just little offices. They're really not. They are st structurally different and what happens inside is definitely different. The occupants are 95% women and children, which are vulnerable subsets of the population. So you start talking about all, you know, the chemical stew that consists of indoor air. Uh, there are a lot of things to think about. Well, and, you know, that raises raises the point. Um, we're, we're laser focused on maybe the indoor environments at this point due to the pandemic. But these IAQ problems in schools, this is nothing new. I've been a consultant for 35 years and schools have been one of the areas we've spent a lot of time over these years. Mm -hmm. So so tell, let's uh, just jump into a little bit of, uh, you know, a little more descriptive of, of some of the uh, problems that have been faced in schools in the U.S. and, and certainly Mansell, uh, you know, in, in the indigenous communities. I mean, it's it seems like those are some of the worst schools I've seen in my career. Uh, at I least do on the just, East Coast. Yeah, I want to paint the picture. Let, let's go back to when we were in third or fourth grade and realized that the door was closed due to sound. Windows were closed due to sound. And, you know, the, the, the teacher wanted to be able to, to talk <clears throat> clearly. So um, a lot of people breathing and uh, uh, very, very poor conditions inside. So just remember that that's the environment that we're now talking about. So, yeah. Yes, well, pre-pandemic. You know, the old way of looking at an environment uh, was, you know, once upon a time, dirty outside air was the, the miasma in the 1800s that caused illness in people. Um, and then there were different ways to build buildings then. Uh, in New York City, it was called, quote unquote, cathedrals of learning, which is sort of politically incorrect today. But uh, those are the buildings with great facades and names of famous people on the front and tall windows that open top and bottom. The goal of that was natural ventilation and daylight. They worked. Mansell, you yeah. had a point. I'm just going to say that pre-pandemic, um, our tribal schools tend to be underfunded <coughs> and many times deferred maintenance, particularly during the recession as I visited schools. This was, um, you know, early 2000s. Um, I, I saw schools that literally shut down their ventilation because they could not afford to um, heat or cool their, their school. Um, so yeah, pre-pandemic, uh, we already had significant issues with ventilation, with cleaning practices. Um, earlier, we talked about asthma rates for our Native Americans. Um, typically, we're looking at almost double the asthma rates amongst Native Americans. So um, that creates uh, a much greater um, 
problem when you come to air quality issues and in our schools. Mm -hmm. So let's try to, uh, I know we, we all think this and we forget to do it sometimes, that we're able to easily identify all of the challenges, the issues, the problems, and the impacts, you know, and it's now not just like cognitive challenges or some minor uh, emotional challenges. What kids have gone through now is an extreme emotional uh, impact from, you know, the, the paranoia or the nightmares that are probably haunt them for a long time. Let's shift to some positive recommendations. So, uh, Claire, why don't you go next? Why don't you tell us what are you, what's your recommendations for many of these schools, especially on a tight budget? What are your, like, here's some things you should be focused on. Get your uh, engineering team to be thinking about this, figure out how to budget for these kind of things, you know, later this year and even to next. So what are your top uh, few recommendations for these schools? Well, I would start with ventilation. Um, our, that's one of the consistent things I saw across schools as I visited schools, again, across the nation, new schools, old schools, it didn't really matter. Um, ventilation was, the schools were always underventilated. Um, in some situations, I'd find that they made, maintenance directors made conscious choices that they knew that um, increasing ventilation with outside air um, had higher costs and they were in a cost-saving mode. So um, they would clamp down on, on open air. Um, so universally, I would, I would say that um, ventilation, bringing in outside air, whether it's through your HVAC, through windows, or however you can do it, um, is a key message I would um, want to get out to all school administrators. That's been a problem since pre-pandemic too, right? I mean, yeah. ventilation, in my experience in 35 years, has been an ongoing school nightmare, really, everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, that's true. And um, I think that uh, EPA has had some, has had a longstanding program um, on indoor air quality in schools for a long time. Uh, the budget was slashed out from under it about 10 years ago. And it's really unfortunate that in this last eight, 10 year period of time, there's been so little attention to school indoor air. Because at this point in time, we know that it's an airborne virus and we know that everybody needs to have fresh air in the buildings. And I think the ASHRAE recommendation is four to six air changes an hour. Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, there's school systems all over the country that aren't doing two probably. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the city of Philadelphia school system where we've, ha where we've had some uh, work relationships over the years. Um, the, last, the last information I had were uh, last fall, uh, none of the buildings have working ventilation systems and all the windows are closed. Uh, buildings leak like a sieve because they're coming apart. Uh, but uh, in terms of functional systems, there isn't one. And so one of the questions might be, how do you get the window open? Can you chisel it open? And right. uh, what do you then cover it up with? Do you put bars or screens or what's your security mechanism? Another is to plug in a portable HEPA air cleaner in a classroom. Uh, and then the question is, do you have sufficient power capacity or electrical capacity in a very old building with damp walls to plug in a lot of devices all at once and run them 18 hours a day? I think there are a lot of huge questions that, uh, frankly, um, as much as I admire the folks at CDC, I don't think they thought things through thoroughly on some of the most rural or some of the most impacted urban school systems when they were producing their guidance. Here in Colorado, they were very active because the University of Colorado is very active. So 
they were opening windows and kids just had to leave their coats on all day long because the, the compromise was you got a fresh air, but I can't actually heat this room anymore. So it was a, you know, a challenge that, you know, uh, pick one, either you're, uh, you know, you have, you're comfortable and you probably have poor in your air quality or let's bring in some fresh air, but there is a temperature challenge that goes along with that. So um, right. I do want to point out that your concept of adding HEPA filtration, people will buy a small room air purifier that's designed to do a, a, a part of that room. They're not really investing in four of them, nor are they putting them in the kind of middle of the room. They're putting them over in the corner as though thinking that that corner of that classroom that's empty is going to help the entire room and they need to figure out a way to you know, rearrange their room. So those are kind of in the middle. Right. Well, there's, a, there's a yeah. size, right? Clean air delivery rate, CADR listing mm -hmm. on the air cleaners, right? So but I don't know, maybe Bob knows, but it's somebody else in the audience, there is, there is, I don't know of a one that actually is efficient for an entire classroom to well, make it you buy. Yeah. The, the problem is it's, it's not just a matter of even CFM, right? The, the airflow rates on these devices, it, it's location, right? Because you're trying to get some form of mixing and airflow and, and that's, that's where it becomes problematic. To, to drop a portable air cleaner in, let's say, a classroom environment. You know, portable air cleaners work out great. I've had one in my bedroom for 15 years. You know, in, in a residential setting, they're real easy to locate, not a problem. You usually have enough outlets. But in a school setting, now now you've got to get this thing somewhere, you know, located in the room where you're not tripping people on extension cords. And, you know, it's not, not to say it shouldn't happen because I think I think there's a lot of validity to, to putting these portable devices in these rooms. And even, you know, like Joe, you mentioned having it over in a corner. Uh, that's not ideal, but that's still better than not having one in the room at all, because there still is some impact, even if it's not properly located or optimally located, still having HEPA filtration, it's still doing some air cycles and it's, it's making eight. If I, was, if I was a teacher, I would have one on my desk, you know, cause it was it'd be up where I'm breathing. Uh, you know, it's kind of an if obstacle. If I was a teacher, but, I'd have myself yeah. in a bubble, but that's another yeah. story. <laughs> well, I think it's been really difficult to, um, reopen schools. I know CDC has published a number of different studies out of uh, several states looking at, you know, who's successful and why they're successful. Uh, but a lot of those haven't really pulled up the information about ventilation and cleaning practices at the same time. So it's, um, there are a lot of variables here in terms of indoor air. Uh, so I think it's been difficult to get all of that. Part of it is nobody actually tracks school facilities and what, you know, what they're doing. Well, you just mentioned a side a note. In, in the right, unless every once in a while there's a GAO report. There was GAO in June of uh, last year, 2020, on ventilation. Um, well, more broadly, problems in schools and what systems are working. What was it, 35, 36,000 uh, estimate of um, HVAC systems that need to be replaced or updated? Those are just people who had systems. You, know, I you mean, mentioned actually, a side note of, of the cleaning products that we just were giving your to kind of focus on keeping the virus uh, at bay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every night these things are being, you know, um, hosed down, scrubbed, you know, fogged, adding chemicals like, that we've never seen in our history. And then the students now come into these, you know, secondary exposures that we haven't even begun to think about. And how do you get rid of those constant chemicals that they're now being exposed to? So right. there's multiple layers here that we really haven't thought through as to what's their long-term impact for these younger, uh, these younger uh, people. Uh, we've worked on cleaning in, uh, cleaning in schools for almost 20 years. Um, and uh, had, and I think one of the things that came out of that was a number of different states, including New York State where we're based, 
uh, requiring all public and private schools actually do the third party certified general purpose cleaning products. It's one step to reducing the chemical load inside because uh, they do reduce hazard, particularly asthma gens. Um, and the same thing is true as dis disinfectants. There are disinfectants on the EPA endless, the endless, which is good for SARS-CoV-2, um, which are actually a little safer and you know they have less impact on human health, but they're effective against the virus. So it's important to look for those. A great friend of ours, a friend of Healthy Schools Network is a responsible purchasing network that does a lot of work with um, uh, state and municipal green procurement programs. And uh, I know they culled the end list for um, uh, preferred disinfectants and Green Seal has done the same thing. So um, there are, there's good advice out there. Um, and part of it is don't use a fogger and don't use, don't use an electrostatic sprayer. So, so Mansell, you, you deal, you know, and your network uh, deals with a lot of uh, underfunded school facilities, right? And school mm -hmm. facilities that I'm assuming really weren't in great shape prior to this pandemic. I mean, you're, you're already starting from a, a place that's not desirable. Um, how, how, how much has this really been, you know, has this pandemic compound, compounded the situations that you have? Well, a lot of the tribal schools are still um, not convening, not um, having students in the school building as of yet. Um, but uh, many of the tribal schools are in rural communities. Uh, they've been underfunded for a long time. I remember um, that shortly after my t stint as a classroom teacher, um, we hit the recession and people were talking about, well, we're reducing staff. And they were specifically reducing custodial staff. And they kept saying, we're going to keep our academic programs strong. But it quickly became apparent to me, visiting schools around the nation, that, um, that the reduction in custodial staff uh, was having very detrimental effects on the overall building and, and structure, and particularly in the tribal schools where um, there's funding shortages and um, the students are often already in home environments that are um, less healthy, and then they come to school and it's even worse uh, sometimes. Um, there's actually been times when I'd visit a school and after a few minutes, I'd have to leave because my asthma was kicking in. I remember one case where I went immediately to the superintendent's office and told him, um, you've got a sick building here. And um, he looked at me a little annoyed and he said, well, write me a report. So I grabbed a piece of paper off his desk and said, you have a sick building and signed it. He was not impressed. But a, a few weeks later, after we gave him all the data about lack of ventilation and the illness of his uh, students, um, they finally took some actions to improve the, the air quality in that, that school. But um, between lack of knowledge, lack of custodial staff, lack of um, uh, well money, because so resulting in a lot of deferred maintenance, um, some of the schools are in pretty poor shape. Um, but more recently, there have been some investments. Uh, federal government has been investing in um, building some of the, rebuilding some of the schools. Um, state governments, um, likewise, have acknowledged that um, they have responsibility for schools that are serving Native American students. Um, but some communities are really lacking and others are, are doing better. Well, let's let's change gears and talk a little bit about the uh, American. Well, wait, 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 I want to get one point in before you okay. change gears. Okay. So many people have uh, been tuned into Joseph Allen. He's the you know national figurehead of a lot of stuff out of Harvard University. 
uh, Chan Medical School. And he does have this one great concept, which I've tried to use for residential. And that is, he says that the building facilitators that are in, that make, make sure that your rooms are clean and ventilated probably have more impact than your uh, actual physician. And when you think about it, the thing that actually impacts you the most is your environment, which probably does impact you more or sends you to the doctor or makes you think about why those things. So when mm -hmm. they say they're laying off that kind of staff or they're making alterations that that's not a priority, they're not realizing how much they're impacting the, the student's health and ultimately lead them back to a physician. So that is something that we should keep in mind. And those people, test yeah. scores and attendance. Yeah, One thing it's that, yeah, cognitive issues uh, do, based on that stuff. Too. Well, it's also good to point out that it's not like there was an abundance of overstaffing to begin with. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we've we've neglected the infrastructure of our maintenance departments and schools across the across the board. Right. You know, and certainly and uh, a lot of especially in the urban areas. But, um, you know, with the American Rescue Plan, there's there's been funds that have been specifically earmarked yes. to help improve schools. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, well, if they're allowable uses, they're not set asides for facilities or buildings and grounds. So uh, for everybody, the, there's a big difference there, too. And, what you know, you what? need to you, you need to explain the difference yeah. there, yeah. the being yeah. a set aside so, versus. So American Rescue Plan called ARP um, is sending one hundred and twenty eight billion dollars to um, public schools, K-12 public schools across the country. It's all divided out by the state. If you go to the U.S. Department of Education website, you can see the state-by-state state, uh, allocations. Um, in the, within it, uh, there's some set-asides. So about 122 of the 128 are, are more open. Some of it reserved for learning law, some of it for special education, some of it, there are a couple of set-asides. Um, so the rest of the money can be used for multiple purposes. So there's a long list of allowable uses of these funds. And so that includes school facility repairs to address the virus and environmental health hazards. It includes inspecting, testing, maintenance, um, and repairs and upgrades to H HVAC systems. And it includes something which is pretty vague to me, strategic implementation of public health protocols, well, I, something like masking and cleaning, I think. Um, but those are only allowable uses. Nobody actually has to do that, uh, which is, brings us full circle as to why we're celebrating with clean air in every school for National Healthy Schools Day. Um, so if, if any of these have been tied down, if for example, the school facility repairs and environmental health hazards had been allotted say $20 billion or $10 billion that would have been explicitly stated and that money would have been reserved for that purpose. But nowhere is any of that money reserved for explicit purposes of dealing with uh, buildings and grounds kinds of issues. So one of the things I think that uh, the previous conversation made me think about is, in our view, I don't know how many people share this, um, school buildings are a little bit like the tragedy of the commons. Everybody uses it, but nobody's responsible um, for the whole area itself. Um, the other is that schools are really knowledge hierarchies, right? And they that high, put high value on book learning. And typically, they don't put a lot of value on people who work with their hands. And that's part, I think, of what's happening to school buildings is the, the work that's done by people who work with their hands uh, is not as highly valued as 
somebody is teaching intermediate Latin or chemistry um, or third grade reading for that matter. Uh, so I think when it comes to how money will be spent, um, there's a lot of small p politics that take place in local school districts. I think um, community pressure, parent pressure to make sure that there is ventilation in school. I think teacher unions, if they can do it, uh, they have a lot of issues on their plates clearly in a pandemic. Uh, but I think everybody who can push on indoor air quality in schools, this is the best time to do it. Um, at this point, we're, we're hitting the halfway mark. We're just about 30 seconds out. So I'm going to ask our virtual studio audience, uh, you're all invited to turn on your cameras now, and I'd encourage you to do so. Um, still keep your microphones muted at this point. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, um, raise your hand. And um, Susan uh, Valenti, our moderator, will uh, you know give you the floor and let you uh, ask questions. So by all means, turn your cameras on anyway, so we can all see your lovely faces. Um, follow up to that. that reminder, uh, reminder where to do the uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's I guess we should explain that, assuming that everybody knows where it is. Um, at the bottom of your control bar, if you're in our virtual studio audience and in the actual Zoom meeting here, um, there's a reactions tab. If you click on that, there's a, a button to raise your hand and you hit raise hand button and Susan will recognize that. You can also um, reach uh, out to Susan, our moderator, or us via the uh, chat. Um, for those of you again that are in the virtual audience so a follow-up to that uh, that point you just made claire though has, is there and this is to both of you mansell and claire um has epa done anything to help uh direct or any guidance with the arp funds as far as dealing with underserved communities in the impoverished well, areas here's, here's the other nice part that i didn't quite get to before the 30 minutes came up because there's a lot to cover here um within the arp the american rescue plan epa is allocated 100 million dollars exclusively to work in poverty communities and poverty schools on a range of different um, things. They've got specific authorizations they need to fulfill. Uh, one is un uh, indoor air under the Clean Air Act. Uh, the other is Safe Drinking Water Act. The other is CERCLA, that's uh, hazardous waste. And then under energy policy, a diesel reduction. So they have very specific deliverables here that they can work on both uh, with local communities and with states. Uh, tied to very specific EPA deliverables. So that makes it, but we don't know yet exactly, we have, we have ideas, but we don't know yet how exactly how they're going to administer or allocate that 100 million. Um, our advice has been that they use it to, they use a fair amount to do uh, competitive grants with the states to work on indoor air. That would be a great use of it. Um, the other is to work with community organizations, universities, and uh, other uh, groups to work specifically around um, indoor air, uh, cleaning and disinfecting issues, and other things directly related to the pandemic. I think there's some great things they could do with it. It also would give EPA a platform, we think, to kind of, um, because it's uh, the indoor air program has um, um, has been so short of funding for so long, this gives it a great opportunity to sort of step up again and refresh and relaunch what they're doing in the area, which I think would be incredibly useful. I do wanna remind people that the last administration did diminish some of those programs in terms of clean water and clean air. That was kind of a sad state that those things happen and they yeah. just use yeah, yes. uh, you know, a, lame jargon, yeah. Yep, inside it's, it's a mess, so is uh, CDC, inside it's a mess. Peter from our studio audience has a question. Uh, I believe you're unmuted. 
yes, I think I am. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, P Peter, just want you to tell us uh, your background or just kind of introduce yourself in a, one sentence if you could. Okay, well, um, I'm sort of hoping to get into the field and uh, my uh, interest has been uh, primarily energy saving, but um, it kind of got sidetracked into the uh, concept of indoor air quality. And part of the reason is that I've discovered that uh, I'm building up some more problems with um, allergies. And I think I'm giving, some, giving myself some of these problems through my ventilation system, which just happens to be a uh, air, air heat exchanger. And I think that the defrost, when it goes into defrost, the air flows change in the ducting. And I believe that I'm uh, seating myself and the whole house to, um, to uh, molds. But so that's an aside. But the main thing is uh, this um, new ASHRAE recommendation of four to six air changes per hour. That seems totally off the charts. It's totally, that's just, it doesn't make sense. It's just far too much, I think. Well, okay, so I'll try and defend that. In fact, I got calls early and it actually had risen to 20 air changes per hour. Their, their goal wow. was what can we do to make the indoor like the outdoor? That if you're going to take your classroom outside, it's a nice day and comfortable, that would be a great place to do that if everybody could hear the instructor. So that would be the one of the safest environments with a little bit of distance. So like, how can we make inside more like outside? So they wanted to figure out what, what could they do to increase that without making it uh, the worst energy penalty or even achievable at all. So uh, I've done a lot of calculations. The six is achievable and it becomes more achievable if you combine it with other technologies, like let's figure out a way to get more fresh air in and let's mix the air, which is a pretty cheap thing with some fans facing to the walls. And let's also add some HEPA purification standalone. So those three things combined can give you that technically, you know, six air changes per hour, even four is better than what you've got. Three is better than what you probably had. So anything you do is an improvement. So it, it sounded crazy in the beginning, but it didn't take long for me to start calculating. This really is not a difficult thing to achieve. Um, and one thing I do remind people that we think COVID is winding down. COVID will be like the flu. It, there'll be COVID yeah. seasons where we have regular COVID shots, like flu shots. Uh, COVID is going to hit parts of our country for a long time, that these are things that are going to come come and go. It's not a, it's forever and done. Uh, these are things we're going to figure out how to, how to keep doing regularly in our schools and our environments. See, that, that raises a question though, you know, Peter raised an issue, you know, of, you know, the energy uh, concern versus the indoor environmental quality. And, and that's like, you know, the whole, I think my whole tenure in the industry, the last 35 years, you know, there always seemed to be this, you know, you'd always see the scales of justice, right? The balancing between indoor air quality and energy. And, and I, I don't think we're at a point anymore where we can have that. We, we can't, we can't keep saying, well, we can't afford to have, uh, you know, good indoor environmental quality because there's, there's an energy penalty. That, that's, I think that that ship sailed. We, we do have to be concerned about the quality of our indoor environments. And I think schools, you know, are, are one of those places where it's just been pushed off for way too many years. Well, let's accept there's a cost to have good, fresh, fresh, I use in that quotes, fresh air in our houses and our environments. It, there's just a cost for that. It's not free. Nothing's free. So we just need to accept that it actually is. When you look at the, the ERVs, HRVs, and these these little portable things, they use a fraction of energy. It really is pretty shocking at how well you could ventilate a house or environment for a, a, a fraction of what your normal uh, heating. With the new ECM is. motors yeah. and things like that, yeah, that are right. very it, really, yeah, it, has, really, it has become energy yeah. efficient in theory. So yeah.
Well, what about the uh, condition of the building? If the building isn't less than pristine, uh, super clean conditions, if you're turning up the uh, airflow through the building, uh, is there not a ch chance that you'll be exacerbating problems like moving mold around and so on? Mance, I want to give that to Mansell because you also have uh, potential lead <laughs> issues in some of your environments. Can you talk about some of the things you're trying to do with the building structure itself to make those uh, better facilities? Well, um, things like asbestos, lead, um, other contaminants are certainly a problem. Um, however, if you're bringing in more outside air and if you're filtering air, you're eliminating um, a lot of those additional um, contaminants. And of course, um, I don't advocate ventilation and ignore everything else. Um, you've got to take care of the building. You've got to do moisture control um, leading to mold control. Um, you've got to invest in the structure, um, eliminate peeling paint and all of those things, um, in addition to also increasing ventilation. But the purpose in ventilation is um, to reduce the exposure of people to the various air pollutants. And I would encourage us to think of it as an investment that um, making this investment, we're investing in our children, we're investing in their academic um, success. We are investing in teachers that um, are healthier and more able to effectively teach. Um, so I'd like to think of it as you mentioned HRV, those are heat recovery ventilators. Um, I've had some schools that I've worked with, had it significantly improves air quality while dropping um, the cost of improving. Um, the air quality. So there are technologies where you can achieve both. And with the investment money that's available now, I would definitely recommend investing in systems like the heat recovery ventilators and the ERVs, energy recovery ventilators, um, to both achieve better air quality as well as uh, reduce energy costs. Because, um, you know, we're, we're also working on climate change issues and recognize that energy usage also degrades um, our climates and our quality as well. So we definitely want to balance. Terry uh, from our audience made it made a comment in the in the chat that I think is worth worth noting, especially with schools uh, that, you know, bringing just bringing in more outside air in, in certain environments, the outside environment does not necessarily mean clean air. You know, we tend we tend mm -hmm. to take that to mean that it's better air than indoors. And, and that's, you know, it's the case much of the time in the United States. Uh, but there's a lot of areas, urban areas, areas with agricultural activities going on where maybe the outside air isn't all that great either. So bringing in more without having the capacity for proper filtration and cleaning of that that air is not necessarily going to improve things. Uh, Susan Valenti, our editor, has got a question here. So, Susan, you going to come on camera? Yep, hold on. Um, I, I, have a Claire, I have a question for Claire. Um, Claire, um, um, in the first half, you talked about how there's still no um, school, school environmental tracking. There's no agencies doing it. There's no group, um, you know, if you had to pinpoint an agency or a group that should do it, what, um, what would that be? I think that's a real tough question. Um, I think right now, what, what we would love to see uh, is EPA take the lead in establishing an interagency task force on school facilities and kind of wrestle with some of these really tough questions. 
um, because indoor air has been a problem for such a long time. And literally everything that happens from the design to construction, the engineering, the maintenance of the building to where it's located are going to affect indoor air. So I think there needs to be some sort of uh, kind of top-down look at it. And every time you look at schools and you look at what they're trying to accomplish, you're dealing with multiple agencies. You're dealing with labor, you're dealing with education, you're dealing with health, you're dealing with energy, uh, you're dealing with the environment agency. Um, and sometimes local, and emergency local management. I just, yeah. you know, I think it's, I think there needs to be a tracking system on school facilities within the states. Uh, that is one proposal that came up under uh, a different bill called the Rebuild America Schools Act is for states to develop a tracking and reporting system on school facilities. And that would happen within the education field. But I think what you decide to track and report needs to come <clears throat> from EPA uh, and maybe from energy, uh, maybe from occupational health. So I think there are a number of ways to take a look at this, but it's gonna take, it's gonna take a lot of work. I don't think there's, you know, what I'm saying is there's no easy answer here. Well, I'm a bottom up person. Um, I, yeah, I really think you. that um, we need to look at principles. Principles are responsible for the operation of their building, the safety of their children. When I go into a building, that's who I report mm -hmm. out to, um, principals. And I know that principals are not educated in these matters. Um, right. Every principal I've talked to is, does not understand um, air quality. So um, I would like, I devote my energy to educating um, kids, teachers, and principals, um, because that's where we can really affect the change. And one of the problems that we have with ventilation is it's not visible. We can measure distances. We can measure number of students with masks on, but we can't really easily, um, without some kind of instrumentation, understand what's going on with air quality. Um, one of the instruments I use is a carbon dioxide meter. Um, and I've used that to explain to principals, teachers, students, um, what's going on in their air and how they can quickly make um, a, a preliminary assessment of what's going on by looking at carbon dioxide levels. And that really changes the game when, you, when you're able to give a metric that um, people can look to. I mean, that, that certainly gives them the ability to at least get some sort of a numerical representation of, you know, maybe what's happening on a ventilation standpoint in this space. So that, that's pretty important. Um, what, what about, you know, we hear a, ventilation and I think ventilation is key here. So just let me preface what I'm about to say that I, I really do believe that we're dealing with an airborne virus, you know, as, as far as the pandemic and uh, as far as having, you know, enhanced ventilation, enhanced filtration, that's critical. Uh, what about cleaning and disinfecting in our indoor environments though, especially in schools? So I, how should we be doing that? Are we doing it right? Are we doing it wrong? What can we do better? Well, right now everybody's doing it over too much. <laughs> That's wrong. Overuse is, is as bad as not use. Um, what we've gone back to the original guidance from CDC is they assumed the transmission was surface contact and it turns out the transmission is air. Um, but they've still left cleaning and, uh, cleaning and disinfecting as a priority um, and not listed ventilation as a priority. So it it's, it's adding to the confusion within schools. So getting that fixed might be helpful. Um, we've gone back to what uh, New York State published um, back during H1N1. I published a joint memo from the health department and the education department about basic cleaning and disinfecting for the flu. And it's just really simple. 
uh, and it's really easy to take a look at. Um, and it's simple for people to follow. It does talk about hard surfaces um, and we've encouraged people to, you know, go back to, go back to a plain program. Don't, don't talk about enhanced cleaning and fogging and spraying and um, covering everything. It's important for people to realize, I'm sure your group does. I'm sure people who are uh, in your live audience. Yeah, you know, you're yeah. making an assumption well, that I don't think no, you should we'll make say, here. But cleaning and disinfecting are two separate processes. You have to yes. clean before absolutely. you apply the disinfectant. Yes, absolutely. And when you're applying a fogger, you're not doing that. And the disinfectants don't clean because they can't cut through the lipid layer of the virus. They don't, uh, they don't have surfactants. So yeah, we've had uh, us a lot of great uh, discussions on that and some of the, the top quality experts on that. The one thing that came out of every discussion was that regular um, soap that you use to clean your hands or even your dishes mm -hmm. can be just as effective as any of these other things we were buying. Mm -hmm. Soap combined with microfiber is what I always recommend. And um, some of the Bureau of Indian Affairs schools have actually gone to microfiber and when you're using microfiber, you can use less toxic cleaners. Uh, COVID is scary, and so people think they need the most toxic, the strongest that you can possibly use, but it's actually the other way around. COVID is relatively easy to, to destroy, right as Claire yeah. referred to. Um, soap and water does great. Yeah, um, we don't need total these toxic yeah. cleaners. And that's a misconception everybody's had, right? You know, having it being an enveloped virus, it actually does shatter quite readily just with a surfactant, you know, it's, and, but, but see, that goes back to the whole thing of, you know, why are we fogging the indoor environments? Why was that ever a directive anyway? You know, if, if, we're, if we're dealing with airborne trans, well, I get that. I, yes, <laughs> I, I'm asking the question rhetorically. Um, you know, if, if we're dealing with airborne transmission, right, the vector, you know, is really the person-to-person -person contact. So, you know, fogging a space, as soon as you bring the occupants back in, have you done anything? So I, uh, uh, I asked well, Susan to no, dig up. Well, no, you poison the air. Yeah. I mean, right, yes. you know, you can't kill Well, you have done that, yeah. Right? Yeah, but it's also now uh, compromised. The, 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 the area you cleaned is no longer clean. So it's a catch-22. But you clean it every night because the next day, it, it's only clean until somebody comes in the room. So It's only clean until the next hand covered with peanut butter and jelly touches the surface, right? And the thing is, that's not to say there isn't some value in prudent use of, you know, sanitizing procedures in a space because it's not all just you know we're not i guess we're just talking about SARS-CoV-2 okay maybe maybe that's not so valuable but i mean there's there are other there are other contaminants that we actually can you know bacterial contaminants and stuff that mm -hmm. some some form of moderate sanitizing of high touch high contact services does make sense i think but these th these can apply to flu seasons uh right yeah. in the past some whole schools or school systems have been like shut down due to a pandemic of, of flu in their area so there are some lessons to be learned about just transfer of these types of uh, uh viruses and diseases so uh, mm -hmm. there there's, there's a learning curve here so yeah um, I, um, I did ask um the, one of the um, things i want to share before we get if, uh, i want to share uh uh, the schematics that Harvard produced out of uh, Joe Allen's uh, office with the New York Times about uh, what happens when you open a window in a classroom. This was the New York Times front page of uh, St. Patrick's Day, March 7th. Yes, that's what I was trying to lead into. Yep, they're so, fabulous. Um, okay, so I'm going to criticize it on a technical level, and that is that many of the people that are in our industry says, um, not all classrooms have 20 foot ceilings with a nice window up high. 
They didn't right. talk about opening the door. They didn't talk about, um, you know, what's actually happening with one little purifier in the room. So they, they made it seem as though there's an easy solution here. Just open a window, put a fan I, in the window. You know, and, yeah. I really, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Joe. I didn't read it that way. I read it that it was really a practical approach to explaining to people what happens. Um, and you could open a different window and get a different pattern of infection, infected aerosolized particles. Um, you could open a different window, you could open a door, you could put the air cleaner in a different place. The idea was to show people how, what happened, because we get a phone call like, which window should I open? Well, can you open any of them? You but know, see, can you open right, a door? Oh, but should that's... I open a door? I mean, the, just the, the most basic level of non-understanding that it did, it did provide that, down, that's right. Right. And, 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 and I get that, Claire. I, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, right. I, I think it does do that. But the problem is that also because people, you're 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 pushing that out to a large constituency out there. Right. You know, the general public that doesn't really understand those nuances, you know, and we you know, as professionals, we can sit here and bash around on that because we we understand a lot of the technical aspects of these things and, and how, you know, slight variances in positioning and airflows, everything changes. But, you know, but to like like you said Claire to, you know to to your point a consumer is like well, which window should we open it should it be that middle one like they did in the illustration is like it, it depends right. you know it's not that simple right but well, but, they I, but, I, the, but they're the, illustrating yeah, they get, the point that they're at least i think the good point joe that i would say to to that new york times illustration is that it at least allows a general consumer to visualize to at least grasp understand the concept of how things you know the air fluid dynamics of what's going on maybe in a space schematics i mean just there were three on the front page but this is a whole series of schematics right. so i think you have to anyway i i just liked it because it started to simplify what was going on can i just make can you hear me yeah tim sure yeah hi i don't want to interrupt but i have one theme that i see that i think is or one thing to uh, say that i think is helpful in terms of balancing energy and indoor air quality and to address the issues that you're, the technical issues that you're raising about, you know, is the air quality good on an ongoing basis in different rooms or different parts of rooms? I'm up in Massachusetts. Uh, I know a school, it's a small campus, uh, 55 monitors are placed around these different buildings. Some of the buildings are new. They have very good HVAC systems. Some of the buildings are old with horrible, no ventilation. So, the consultant has had these monitors in. They're monitoring um, uh, temperature, humidity, CO2, VOCs, and particulate matter. Uh, the critical ones, what the, what the engineering company is able to do is balance the energy consumption by looking at the temperature and looking at the CO2 levels on an ongoing basis and then adjusting the ventilation system and literally opening and closing windows more or less based on you know, CO2 levels and temperature. So if you don't need to have the window open that much, the CO2 level is showing you know, under 600 PPM, for example, <clears throat> then you can close the window and save a little energy or you can turn down the HVAC system. But on, I'm, so I'm stressing that ongoing monitoring is relatively inexpensive. And ongoing monitoring really gives people the, the, the reassurance and the, the feedback, the knowledge that they need uh, to simply manage the facilities as best they can with the resources that they have. 
Yeah, That's, what's your what's your background? Briefly describe to the group. What, what, oh, what I'm sorry. I'm a, uh, I come from, uh, from an energy background. By the way, I tried to turn on my video, but I couldn't. And and I when I tried to, oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I'm in Boston. So um, so uh, my background is I'm the principal of an energy company called Ace Energy Services up here. Uh, we are, uh, we in Massachusetts has a stretch code, i.e. Uh, that is most all the communities you have to have a HERS rating done, if you know what a HERS rating is. And so we certify, we work for hundreds of builders and we certify hundreds of single family and multifamily homes that they meet the Massachusetts energy code, stretch code. And um, so I do that, but I also, uh, we also do, uh, we install, uh, air source heat pump systems and ventilation systems. And we do indoor air quality monitoring. So I want to touch on the monitors briefly because um, sure. there are a lot of cheap monitors out there. There's things that you could just kind of throw on the wall in your classroom and it's only monitoring kind of the wall in the classroom is one of the challenges. But there are, if for not much money, you can actually get one in each room. They recommend maybe every other room that's similar for around $500 um, that gives you reset certified um, information and aware makes those and you can go up from there to something that's yeah. around a thousand dollars that talks to each other the school yeah. systems that i've worked with or talked to they have issues with wi-fi they don't want their wi-fi to be bogged down they have privacy issues so all those things increase your cost but you're right those things can be standalone or they can integrate with your system and i do think you can't see what's going on as mansell mentioned he has a, a co2 monitor and you can't see those things you may be experiencing when it's high but you need to see the invisible. So I do think that schools need to be uh, have investments in those kind of conditions. You have another yeah. question from the audience too. Uh, Josephine, uh, we're gonna get you unmuted here. Hi, yeah. Hey everybody, my name is Josie. Um, I work for ITEP also. And um, I'm working on, I'm actually working on a um, indoor air quality course for Mansell, writing the course for warm climates. But I was wondering about, um, you know, providing educational materials, not necessarily so that a child could do it, but, you know, so that a child could do it, like so that um, somebody with maybe a fourth grade education could read through some very simple instructions and go through and figure out, um, you know, which risks are there and then also go through and figure out um, which risks they could possibly address with using, you know, really simple solutions. Like, um, um, like this is a really, um, you know, kind of a, a not very effective method, but, you know, perhaps even getting something like a UVC light that they sell for, you know, nail salons and, um, putting it in their HVAC system so that, you know, some of the particles are, um, are disabled or are killed before, you know, the viral particles are recirculated in the air. Um, you know, just very, very simple solutions. And then, um, you know, teaching people how to be proactive and identifying the risks to their own personal health so that they're not only more safety conscious, but that's also so that they can um, speak for themselves about, you know, what they're being exposed to and not um, just be passive participants as professionals come in and tell them, dictate to them 
um, what they have to do. My only quick comment before Bob jumps in there is that anything you're going to add to your ventilation strategy, I don't think a fourth grader or even a uh, college educated person understands UVC very well, um, but find the third party evidence that it does something because that, that everybody's after shiny objects when there's so many other cheaper solutions that actually are much more effective. So it can't, it works great in a hospital environment. There are other studies that don't prove exactly that it has enough time to be exposed in some of the systems that schools have. Air is blowing too fast for some of this stuff. So uh, don't grab onto the web, you know, junk that's out there. Find third-party evidence about what you're going to spend your money on in a school. Oh yeah, that wasn't a um, suggestion to go get a little a little nail drying light. And, sure. But it, you know, it's a it's a, an example. Like well, I my, think. Uh, I, you know, I think that might be effective if you if you um, just brought in a portable closet and put it in a portable closet and had ultra low flow, you know, where the air was sucked into there and exhausted from there that, you know, that might. You know, I think the suggestion about, a, you know, fourth grade reading level is, is right on track. I really yeah, do. That's really and my point. Whether you do it on, you know, with a schematic and some simple text which makes it, you know, makes it visually easy to understand, which I think is, you know, one of the things that I liked about the New York Times front page piece is, you know, maybe you take a bunch of those and you line them up in different ways. But I think, I think appealing to um, making sure it is so understandable to everybody, whether they're a homeowner or a small office or a large school building makes a lot of sense. But, well, that's key, right? I mean, you, you have to distill, you know, there's great research out there. This is a problem in the in our environmental industry. You know, this is not just a school issue. This is this is an issue in the industry. There's great research that happens, usually in a silo away from the practitioner side. And all of that happens away from the end consumers, both commercial and professional, you know, our, uh, residential consumers. And we don't do a really good job of disseminating this information and understanding understandable or actionable fashion. Uh, we are at that time where Joe is going to ask the the final qu round question uh, of our two guests, and I'm going to let you do that. I'll make one simple comment, though. The energy is easily tracked. Indoor air quality is not. There's so many variables. It's not like, oh, I can determine how much energy I use for something. So there is a whole different um, education that goes along with that. Uh, so, Claire, I'll start with you. So, you know, what's the one advice you want to give to anybody listening that either goes to school, has kids to go to schools, or is a principal? What's the one resource or thing you should say, you know what, just uh, there's lots of things to focus on, but if you started here, you probably would have great success in the end. Well, I think there are different questions at different levels. Uh, we are telling parents and community members to ask their school for, uh, for their plan and writing to address indoor air. Um, part, of, part of dealing with the pandemic, with the national health crisis, is for schools to have infection prevention and control plans, uh, which is something that we, we've been working on for a while. Um, and the first question is, what is, you know, give us a written statement of what you're doing. What is your policy on indoor air? What are you doing about it? Put it in writing, let us know what's happening. Um, a telephone conversation doesn't guarantee anything is happening. Uh, schools are public agencies. They have, they have locally elected boards. They are public works entities. Have every right as a taxpayer or as a parent, anybody in the community to ask a question and expect, expect an answer, particularly in a pandemic, which is airborne, we want them to know what's happening with indoor air. Ask, ask in writing. 
right, before I ask my uh, last question to Nelson, I want to ask the audience. Uh, Bob and I are debating about doing a, a Tuesday night event once a month, similar to the other things you may find at BSB or Passive House. So if you're interested in something like that, uh, give us some information in the chat. We'd love to get your feedback if that's something you would want to participate in. So, um, Nancil, you're up. Um, why don't you tell us about, you know, what are things that you're recommending? And you guys talk about your hot climates, your um, challenge with uh, funding. So what are some of your best recommendations do you try to give to your group? Well, I think the money is out there now. Um, it's available and decisions need to be made. Um, investments in our a healthy school structure. Um, so we need to recognize that we need to make investments in our buildings. Um, and then the other aspect uh, that I really focus on is um, educating everyone. I call it my breathing curriculum. Um, as has already been stated, everyone needs to understand a little bit about air quality and in particular indoor quality. Um, but I challenge you to find curriculums anywhere in our schools that really do a good job of air quality generally and indoor quality specifically. And that's one of the areas I think that if we can educate um, everyone, and in particular, our school staff, our administrators, um, the teachers on uh, these issues that uh, that can take us a long ways, um, combined with a little bit of understanding about some metrics, being able to make some measurements, um, I think can help a lot if everybody understands. If, if you have a sixth grade student sitting in a classroom that's not adequately ventilated and that sixth grader can say to his teacher, you know, I think we need to look at the ventilation in this room. Um, I think that's very realistic. I think we, we can get students to that point where they understand air quality well enough to advocate for themselves. I can remember as a kid having to do exercises about energy. Uh, I was around for Carter and others were trying to do you know, coloring and exercise, find the things in the house that could use more energy and all that kind of stuff. And I think that we need to now change that language to what's in your environment. And, and those lessons last forever. T kids remember those things um, as part of their lifestyle. So I think if we could in, uh, uh, embed them with the concept that their home could be impacting their health or their environment impacts their health only resonates for the rest of their life. So that's a great cause that I think we all should be pushing. Yeah, I mean, that clearly, um, I think, would be very beneficial. And, you know, that would be one of the positive things that could come from this uh, past year plus of this global pandemic. Um, I think it's critical that we take this opportunity to, um, you know, to push things forward. I mean, it, it, the discussion about our indoor environments is on the table now, right? It's, you know, not necessarily by choice, but by, you know, by uh, just necessity. So I, I think it's important that we don't just let, let, this potential momentum slip and we, we take it forward. Uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, you know, we're in our wrap up mode here. Uh, Joe Medosh, tell us a little bit about what you guys do at Hayward Score and uh, why that would be of interest. Yeah, so uh, I'm a healthy building scientist with Hayward Score. You, we have a free online survey tool for anybody to learn if their home is impacting your health or you're really in your environment, you kind of could expand it. But it asks you questions about your home, your habits, and your symptomology. So uh, all those things get combined to a score with some advice on what you could do to improve your environment. So uh, it's free, haywardscore.com, and uh, we appreciate your time today. So I'll do my shameless plug for Healthy Indoors at this point. Um, so we are a uh, multimedia company. We do uh, we do a lot of things. Uh, obviously, in addition to the show, uh, Healthy Indoors Magazine, uh, the USA edition, is a monthly digital publication. It's free to anyone. 
free anywhere. Um, that's something that you should be taking a look at if you're working in anywhere in this indoor environmental space or have any interest in things going on there. It's available. Um, you can get to it at healthyindoors.com. That's where um, all of our stuff is located. Um, I can actually bring that right up here. Healthyindoors.com is our mothership home base uh, where you can really pretty much find everything we're doing. The magazine, all the back issues are there. Um, the Healthy Indoor Show, all of our back episodes and our audio podcast, along with a whole bunch of resources that are available there. And um, one other thing I'd like to point out is that we actually are launching what's known as the Healthy Indoors Global Community, which will be an online platform that will allow people uh, to network and discuss and uh, learn more about these indoor environmental topics all around the planet. And that's something you can find out more about by going to our Healthy Indoors uh, site and clicking on the community community button that'll take you there and show you a little bit uh, about what we're up to. But we'll be doing a lot more with the community, uh, live streaming these types of shows to it and uh, encouraging people to uh, share and reach out to each other for information. So I guess uh, I'd like to also uh, show the uh, Healthy Schools Network website again. Um, that's at healthyschools.org, right, Claire? Uh, yeah. Right. That's the National Healthy Schools Day portal. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, uh, it, there are uh, there are little buttons there to take a look at. There's some social media. There are uh, free resources to take a look at um, and a way to register a supporting quote about clean air in every school or register a small activity, whether you're doing social media or you're launching some of your own or repurposing some of your own work on indoor air, it's a good time to do it and get a message out. We'd be happy to know about it and, and uh, uh, list it as a continuing activity. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. So, and again, you can get to that uh, at healthyschools.org. That's where the site is that Claire just uh, mentioned. So um, yeah, it's, it's that time again, right? It's that wonderful time to uh, uh, wait. One second. I do want to acknowledge Susan did a fantastic job in the background. I appreciate your efforts of trying to keep us informed of, uh, of the links and the topics. So uh, that I think made a major difference and we're trying to improve all that. And if you have other stuff to contribute in the future, please don't hesitate to, to post that stuff. So thank you. And Susan. we're thanking Alex Nato who just signed in for us. He's our National Healthy Schools Day coordinator and program manager for Healthy Schools Network. Thanks. So um, with that, I'd um, like to thank our guests again today, Claire Barnett um, and uh, Mansell Nelson. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us, as well as all of you in our uh, live virtual studio audience. Uh, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to come here and be part of uh, part of our program and help participate. Um, we'll be back next week. We have uh, we have a great show coming up next week as well. We'll be joined by uh, Vinny Lubdell. Um, he's uh, the president of Healthway and also co-founder of IntelliPure. And uh, we're going to be talking about air purification and air cleaning and indoor environmental. And Vinny's been in this space a long time. Uh, he's a global manufacturer of uh, products and some very unique technologies. But he's been he's been looking at it, you know, from the clean room uh, aspects all the way to uh, dealing with residences and just common general spaces. So that, that should be a great discussion. And then the following week, um, you know, I'll jump to that. Susan uh, will be happy to report on it. We have uh, Bud Offerman, Glenn Morrison, and Tom Licker. Uh, these guys will be coming in and our discussion is going to be uh, predicated on Bud Offerman's paper that he released uh, uh, a while back. I don't, when did that come out, Susan? Wait, his white paper. 
Bud's paper that was. Uh, oh, it was. It was actually just like a like a month or so ago. So but then, basically... uh, you know, but actually, but actually, Glenn Morrison's paper was actually um, done in 2018. You know, on basically the same topic. So. Yeah, and the topic is just so, just so we can elaborate on it. It was like basically snake oil in the indoor environmental industry. Uh, so this is going to be an interesting discussion uh, because we're going to have some researchers, a consultant, and actually a practitioner from the space. And uh, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be a, like a, a cage match, but we'll see how it goes. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one as well. So. Um, for the uh, Healthy Indoor Show and all our guests and uh, support staff, uh, Joe Madosh, Susan Valenti, um, I'm Bob Krell. Uh, we'll see you next week, same bat time, same bat channel here on the Healthy Indoors Live Show, Thursdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern. Until then, please stay safe and please take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. <laughs>